On New Year's Day 2000, is it possible that we're in for an international disaster? It's called the Y2K or Year 2000 bug. It's a problem that some fear could cripple the nation. Everyone knows failure of Uncle Sam's computers would be chaos. Glitches in the air traffic control system, breakdowns in oversight of nuclear plants and weapons. You wouldn't want to be in an airplane, you wouldn't want to be in an elevator, and you wouldn't want to be in a hospital. There is a significant risk, a 40% risk, of a global recession. The life of this baby depends on computer chips. They are embedded in the machines that monitor his heart rate. And the question is, will they work on January 1st, 2000? At the stroke of midnight, January 1st, 2000, elevators may stop. Heat may vanish. Credit cards and ATMs may cease to function. Airplanes and trains may come to a halt. This is not one of the summer movies where you can close your eyes during the scary parts. That was a dragon's breath shell. It can shoot a 4,000 degree flame 300 feet. It's also the most popular ammunition among Y2K customers at KGS Guns and Ammo. Everything's in the internet, everything's in computers, and we're gonna lose it all. And Jesus is coming back. Surf through the internet these days and you keep coming across a strange new word, Toyota Walkie. The word stands for the end of the world as we know it. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This happened to telling you stories of the old... Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were a little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Take a second to thank all of our listeners. Thanks listeners. Okay, that didn't take long. Just kidding. There are tons of you out there and we are so happy to have you all on board the misinformation craziness train. Something. I don't know. We are not spreading misinformation. We're doing the opposite. No, my name is Misinformation. Ah. Get aboard. Choo-choo. <gasps> don't get fresh with me, young man. So, you know, if you haven't yet, we'd really appreciate if you'd reach out to us on Twitter or go on iTunes, send us a rating or review. Those always help with, uh, with finding new listeners because they see how much you love us. And we had some new love. We had a new review from Patient9. Thank you so much for going and leaving us such a thoughtful, well-composed review. And we have a few new ratings as well. So thank you all of our anonymous listeners. We appreciate you liking our show, just not enough to put your name on it. That works. I get that. (laughs) I get that. I kind of feel that way too. So today, what are we talking about, Sam? We are talking about something that's near and dear to a lot of people's hearts that we spend a lot of time thinking about and postulating on. It's been romanticized in fiction and comedies and tragedies. And, you know, it seems to really resonate with people in a very powerful and meaningful way. Is it love? No, it's the apocalypse. Get it together, man. I'm sorry. Apparently post-apocalypse or apocalypse or what, that is a quite the thing right i love post-apocalyptic literature i do too actually shockingly i'm surprised i do i'm really not i was surprised i did when i was earlier but then i learned that i'm bleak and sad and it all makes sense one of my favorite books of all time is the road by cormac mccarthy yes neil made us read that hi neil and 
we both put a lot, a good chunk of our lives into The Walking Dead. We've both done that. Yeah, but you just see it in every movie, TV show. The end of the world is coming or has happened or is happening right now. I mean, there are even podcasts about it. Don't listen to them. They just listen to the... Just kidding. So, Sam, why do you think it is that our culture, our society is so obsessed with the end of the world? Well, I, I think that a lot of people would like to just kind of clear the deck and start over again. You know, and I think especially in fiction, it's very attractive to writers because it's like, oh, well, there are social norms and reality and constructs that I have to deal with. So let's just whoop, (laughs) put that right over there and (laughs) I'll make up my own stuff. So I think to writers, it's especially attractive for that reason. And I think that we get to explore what the innate virtues of humanity are. Right. You're really able to strip out all the rest of society's trappings and focus on the people and how they interact and their conflicts and their interpersonal conflicts and their survival. I think that in character development, it's really great too, because when you're good, when you don't have to be good, when there aren't societal expectations, you really are just the hero. Right. And then of course, as the hero, you can do anything, be the hero. Right, because the morality clauses are not signed, you know? We're, we've not agreed to anything. It's a new set of rules. Right, you get those liberation fantasies where you're not stuck in that 9-to-5 job anymore and I can go kill some zombies. Be who you were always meant to be. You can start a rictatorship. Or you can destroy the entire world with the virus. Or you can start a cage match of death with zombies. And make everyone your subject. Do you only have zombies? I like the zombies. Um, I'm trying to think. Or you can you can fight against eugenics. Or you can just kill all the zombies and go down to the pub for a drink. But it really is interesting because it has become so popular. I mean, some of the most recent big award-winning books have been about a post-apocalyptic world. Like Station Eleven which is an amazing book. If you haven't read it. Yeah, you should definitely pause. Go read it. It's so good. <laughs> and come back to us so we can talk more about why the apocalypse and post-apocalypse is so interesting to us. So there's this fantastic quote from a writer called Eden Lepucky. I'm sorry, Eden. I've, I've mangled your name. Feel free to write me a strongly worded letter or call the Just a Story hotline. We can escape culture's yoke and all of our learned preconceptions about ourselves and others. But I don't think we can. Gender, for instance, is learned and performed, yes, but it's also ingrained in us. So it's not easy to just shrug it off and pretend it doesn't matter. We are products of culture, and we can't step outside of it. Our identity is formed by language. We inherit rituals we take for granted, etc. I'd love to believe that sexism and racism would go away in the face of questions about how we'd survive. But what if they didn't? What if you had a chance to remake the world and some asshole was remaking it worse. I think the idea of a clean slate is mighty seductive and also terribly scary and also a myth can all truly be wiped clean. So I guess we can just state outright right now that this, you know, is is just a story. The world has not ended. Sure it has. Not as of today. Well, no, but like sometimes it does like the floods and stuff. Like every culture has a flood myth. It's true. The flood myth is something that is in lots of 
cultures and has led some people to think some really interesting ideas. Yeah, but like supposedly it's it's happened before and we've come out okay. So what's the big deal? What's another apocalypse anyway? Well, you know, people have been predicting the apocalypse. People have been predicting the apocalypse. You know, people have been predicting the apocalypse for a very long time. Since the world started, people have been worried about when it was going to stop. Yeah, you know, I mean, it gives us a sense of self-importance. To be able to predict it? Both, really. Or to think that we're going to see the end of it. Right, you know, we are so important that, oh no, some the great catastrophic thing is going to happen and just wipe us all out. Before we go any further, let's talk about the way the world ends. Obviously, zombies is the right answer, but... How, what are the other things that people say are going to happen? Like religious apocalypse, like in right, times. Right, of course, yeah. End and times. then um, mass plague is one. Mm-hmm. And then like whatever wiped out the dinosaurs, asteroids. I mean, there's just a whole litany of things that we seem to think are going to in the world. Oh, global warming, viruses. Some of those things have some weight. <laughs> yeah. You know, the apocalypse, the religious apocalypse. Obviously, that's right around the corner. I was thinking more of the virus thing. Oh, okay, fine. Let's be literal. With all of these imminent threats, what percentage of the population, or, you know, just give me a ratio, like how many people believe that they're going to live to see the end of the world? One in seven. Oh, dear. Remind me not to make five friends. <laughs> Do you think the apocalypse will come in your lifetime? No. I don't either. <laughs> I don't feel that I'm that important. I don't either. And I think that especially now, that number may be elevated because of the rash of post-apocalyptic literature and um, pop culture that's being produced. Like, people want to identify with the hero who survives, and they assume they will be the hero who survives. Right, like, if a zombie apocalypse were to occur, I would definitely be the one. Right, with my bug-out bag and motorcycle, here I go, come at me, world. Doomsday preppers. Oh, that show is so good. Yeah. I don't think it's on anymore, but if you want to watch some crazy people... <laughs> it's really fun. If you're own Doomsday Preppers and you want to explain your position to us and like let us know what we're doing wrong, please write in. But people have been prepping for the apocalypse for years and years and years and years. And that we should go over some of the fun Doomsday predictions that have happened over the last century or so. So are any of these still active or have these all come and gone? They've all come and gone. Oh, they're even more fun. Yes. Oh, the glorious irony. I love it. Let's go. The failed doomsday predictions. So one of the ones that we have to mention is the great disappointment. I love how like literal and searing that name is. It wasn't Batman versus Superman. Really? Wasn't it? That was the great disappointment. (laughs) It was a doomsday prediction. That was given by William Miller. Okay. And he was a Baptist minister. Mm-hmm. And he is credited with starting Millerism. So he's from Milwaukee. Yeah. Um, he was not a big fan of Miller. The Champagne of Pierce. Champagne, you say. He said that the return of Jesus was coming and the end of the world was going to happen, all based on the book of Daniel. He said. So he cited his sources. I like where he's going. He's got a source. He said, my principles in brief are that Jesus Christ will come again to this earth, cleanse, purify, and take possession of the same with all the saints sometime 
between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. Okay, I like the specificity here. He's got a he's got a plan, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. even even this this version of Jesus has an agenda. He's gonna do a little like cleaning and put his name on some things. We've got dates. All right, I'm liking. He's got he's thorough. Now, one thing I do have to ask is, what saints is he talking about? Oh, lowercase saints. He's Baptist. Okay, got it. Moving on. So, guess what happened after March 21st came and passed? He said, sorry guys, I had delusions of grandeur, and I thought that I knew the secrets of the universe a little too well, and clearly that was silly of me. Yeah, it's hilarious. Um, so he changed the date to April 18th. He was originally looking at a Jewish calendar to determine this date, and he said, oh, I used the wrong Jewish calendar. That happens to me all the time. That's why I'm late for things. Oh, good excuse. <laughs> blame the Jews, Sam. I didn't blame ju- the Jews, just their calendar. And only so, one of them. And so he used a different calendar. Okay, different Jewish calendar. And set it for April 18th. Okay. Guess what happened April 18th? He said, clearly I had delusions of grandeur, and I was being silly, you guys, and I'm going to stop doing this now. No. So he changed the date again. To October 22nd. Seems legit. Now, what was the excuse this time? I don't I think he just picked a date. <laughs> he went to the magical mystery hat and said, you here. So after the first two, he really didn't have too many followers hanging on every word. But he really did die convinced that this was going to happen. And many of his followers had a lot of problems after this. A newspaper reported that 14 people ended up in a Maryland state insane asylum because of this. One of his followers said, Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. We wept and wept till the day dawn. My favorite quote from dear Mr. Miller, Reverend Dr. Miller, whatever his name is, um, is... I shall be a poor, miserable, despised creature. And ought to be. But you know, his brand of Christianity Millerism is still around today. Oh, lovely. It is the Seventh-day Adventist. You know, they had, when I grew up in the middle of nowhere in North Louisiana, which I did, we had like a post office and seven churches. And that's it. And a feed store as well, as you do. And... Across from my church was the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I remember being so confused because they were never in church when we were. And so I assumed that it was closed. And I said something to my mom about the church being closed and nobody using it anymore. And it seeming like such a waste. And she's like, Smith, they meet on Saturdays. I was like, mind blown. <laughs> the whole Jewish calendar thing. Yeah, yeah. Wrong Jewish calendar. Yeah. I was looking at the wrong calendar. The Seventh-day Adventist still believed that the prediction was accurate. Okay. But that the changes happened in heaven and not on earth. There was like a shift of management that was mistranslated as the apocalypse. I don't know if we're saying that there's necessarily a change in management. Well, what? His title? What? <laughs> I'm just I will see your defiantly calculating, calendar calculating minister and raise you one chicken. You're going to trade me a chicken for my minister? Yes. Seems like a fair trade. Okay. He's really bad at time management. So. Is your chicken kosher? I have a sneaking suspicion that that the chicken ate pork. 
they make little red glasses <laughs> for chickens that they claim eat all vegetarian diets, or this was like an idea that was put forward. They're little tiny red sunglasses that they put on chickens because chickens are apparently opportunistic cannibals. And if they eat other chickens, they can't be labeled with all vegetarian diet. So in order to keep the chickens from eating other chickens, they make them wear these little glasses that supposedly like make them not want to eat dead chickens. So they give them hipster glasses so that hipsters can eat them? <laughs> it's it's kind of cannibalism, but not like if a chicken ate a chicken. That silenced the chickens. It's no good for anyone. So, it's actually not my chicken story. <laughs> I was going to say, do we have a chicken apocalypse story? Do these glasses on chickens cause them to mutate and take over the world? God willing and the creek don't rise. I tell you what. Yes, that's the story. But no, this this was a real a real thing that happened. This is not like theoretical red chicken glasses. So... In 1806, in Leeds, there was a chicken who kept laying eggs on which were printed in English, Christ is coming. So divine messages on chicken eggs. Yes. The preferred delivery method of God. (laughs) Yes. And also in English, which is obviously... That's that's God's language. It's God's language, yeah. Yeah. Um, So... It's like the virgin birth, sort of. Basically, if you lived in shouting distance of Leeds in 1806, and you heard that there were eggs coming out of some hen's coloca that said, Christ is coming, you would obviously freak out. Like, baby, get the kids. We're going to see the chicken. We're going to, well, you'd want to see the chicken, yes, but you'd probably also, like, sell off all your worldly possessions and decide that you're going to die and things. So the people did. And they also went to see the chicken. And they would watch and she would lay the eggs right before their eyes. And this was all going quite well for the chicken and her owner, who is a woman named Mary Bateman, until the morning when she was caught putting an egg back in the chicken. That's not how that works. It does not come first. I don't know. Some, like, there's some joke to be made there, and it's so confusing and wrong. I just don't even know what to do with it. But apparently she was writing the words, Christ is coming, in caustic ink, reinserting eggs that had already been laid back into the chicken and having the chicken relay them in front of people. Poor chicken. She's also called the Yorkshire Witch, which this is pretty witchy. Some witchy egg hoodoo, for sure. But she was eventually put to death for fraud, murder, and witchcraft, of chickens? No, no, no. We don't execute people for that. We make them kernels. Because she poisoned a couple by feeding them poison pudding for a long time because they'd come to see her about their chest pains. And she wanted to make sure they kept coming to see her about her chest pains. And so she fed them poison pudding and eventually they, they, they died a little. So she was hanged. And interestingly... Her skin was later sold as a magical charm. Who sold her skin? I don't know. Maybe the colonel. Special deal today. (laughs) Mm -mm, Good. Okay. So, yeah, that's the story of the magical, fortune-telling, apocalypse-predicting chicken. Well, good. Well, you know, there have been some apocalyptical predictions in our time. Are you talking like the guy that's on the corner that juggles and stuff? Well, that guy does it all the time. Yeah, he's uh, the end is always nigh. 
But also one that really caused a lot of mass panic. Okay. And one that I remember is the Y2K millennial catastrophe that was going to happen. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And so, for our younger listeners, <laughs> this was whenever we were about to flip over 2000, and everyone was concerned that all the computers were programmed to have the dates where the year was only two digits. So if it was like 1999, it would just be 99. See, so you, you cannot party like it's 1999, only like it's 99. Okay, so it lacked specificity, but I can see the value of just using two digits because lazy, because reasons. Well, it was really because of the amount of uh, memory they had at the time the programs were written, mm-hmm. which was like 30 years before the millennia. And of course, we were still using all these programs. Good job, guys. Everyone was concerned because they thought when it would tick over... The dates would confuse the computers. All the computers would think it was 1900. What if it was 1900? It's not, I'm sorry. Oh. Maybe if they had just let the computers do what they were going to do, we would have all woken up and had maid servants and high collars and worn corsets, and it just would have been 1900. Everything would have been wonderful. It would have transported us all back in time. And you could be oppressed and... Not vote and (laughs) go through prohibition in the World Wars again. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, thanks for fixing it, you guys. So there was a lot of media hype around this. Some of the experts estimated that 40% of the country could be hit by power failures. There was a, was a 40% risk of global recession that premature babies would face death when their life support machines failed. And like anybody on life support machines, like we're going for pathos here, obviously, guys. Yeah, but we got to go with like hitting the heartstrings. Yeah, yeah. like babies. And they just like picked 40% because they used it on everything. I know. So this is a good number. Let's not as high as 50, but... Well, and so, so in medical school, if someone asks you a question... You don't know the answer? You should answer 10%, 40%, or 70%, because you're going to get close enough <laughs> to the right number. But anyway, so there was a, a lot of hullabaloo about this. Much and, hullabaloo. Yes. And so, like, even President Clinton formed a task force to get the country ready for it. The UK was also very big into prepping for Y2K. Everyone had their bug out bags and were ready. The great Reverend Jerry Falwell said, this could be God's instrument to shake this nation, humble this nation, awaken this nation, and from this nation, start revival that spreads the face of the earth before the rapture of the church. Thanks, Jerry. And while there were some serious concerns about some sorts of mechanical failure with this. The really biggest thing that happened was the cultural panic freak that out. occurred. Yeah, it was huge. People freaked out. I mean, if there was a TV movie about it, so you know people are freaked out. Like Sharknado. It was called Y2K. Oh, okay, it's not a very creative title. Sharknado is a different apocalypse. Oh, sorry, confusing apocalypses. Even some of the news reports I watched were like. If you go on the internet, you'll start seeing a word that you have never heard of describing Y2K. What is it? Tiyotawaki. What is it? It's an acronym. Oh, that's not a word. That's what they said. It's the end of the world as we know it. How clever. 
But there were runs on guns, runs on food. There were scams, people trying to save your credit card. Hey, just give us your credit card number and we'll send you a new one that works when Y2K happens. How clever. All of our militiamen and preppers were really getting ready for this. Okay, what were they doing? Oh, I mean, buying guns. They were hosting survival boot camps. They were building camps to survive in. There's one guy that built his own natural gas well. Oh, my God. Smart, but oh, my God. Really smart. (laughs) Like, really. Like, if you had a natural gas well... You would do amazing. Yeah. You would be the you would be the governor. But you know the Chinese, like millennia ago, were using bamboo pipes to create natural gas pipelines to cook their food with. So like I said, the US and the UK made lots of preparations. They spent billions of dollars. And they made a lot of changes. You know, a lot of people like to claim that this was kind of a hoax. Mm-hmm. And it really was overblown. But there really could have been some big problems with it, mostly in kind of the Financial Finances. sector. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was like. That that needs to work. Is what. Yeah, because like suddenly you'd have 100%, 100 years of interest on your savings account. I'm not seeing the problem. Yeah, I think it sounds great. <laughs> um, no, like the two things that I think were probably an issue are like flight stuff, mm-hmm. like timing when you're traveling over time zones and stuff like that. Yeah, and, the like, FAA was one of the big concerns where they put a lot of resources into fixing it. Yeah, I, I would think that would be a problem. I would also think money stuff would be a problem, like trading and uh, like international trades and stuff. Yeah, but ultimately there really weren't any big catastrophes that are associated with it. Good. And there were lots and lots of countries that really didn't do anything about it. Okay, well, like, we did stuff about it. So, like, how much did we spend? A hundred billion dollars. Fun! Ooh, somebody get the debt ticker. Well, one of the things they say that um, really helped is it really helped our kind of crisis preparations. Okay. So, like, after September 11th, they had put a lot of work into the stock market previously. And after 9-11, they were able to really um, use those kind of plans and get the stock market back up and running the next week. That's very impressive. It's weirdly like Hitchhiker's Guide. It's like, always bring a towel. And you're like, that's insane. Why would you always bring a towel? That's just a stupid gag. And then it really does come in handy. It's like he planned it. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, Douglas Adams. And so there were a few little things. Like one nuclear plant in Japan had a radiation equipment failure. But then the backups kicked in. The U.S. did detect m- missiles being sent from Russia. And they're like, it's just a Y2K bug. They were actually firing on Chechnya. <laughs> oh, so it did provide at least one get out of jail free guard. Take it where you can, Russia. I'm going to raise a Moscow mule to Russia. <laughs> as much fun as technology is, I really prefer my apocalypse with some fire in Brimston. Okay, that could be interesting. Puts hair on your chest. Sure. You want hair on your chest? <laughs> asses in the seats, man. Puts asses in the seats. Oh, that's very true. Yeah. There was actually a pretty massive prediction that you may have been assaulted with in the form of a billboard on a highway near you as recently as May 21st, 2011. Do you remember this? Yeah, I remember seeing the billboards. You remember what they look like? Oh, yeah. There's like the family. It's like the silhouette of a guy kneeling by a cross and like it said like family radio. Get your house in order. I don't know what it is. Give us money. Yeah, basically. That's what it actually said, but that's the subtext. They don't print that on the sign. Oh, they're not supposed to. This was the brainchild or prophetic fruit of one Harold 
camping. He was an American Christian radio broadcaster. And he said that there would be a rapture, a la Book of Revelation, which Which is... It's not really in the Book of Revelation. But that's what he thinks. Then there would be five months of suck for the people who were left. And then the world would actually... Don't call it suck. You You get a chance to say fire and brimstone. Hair on your chest, asses in the seats, those things. But, you know, five months of plagues and fire and brimstone and death and sad suck. Five months of suck. I'm sticking with it. Um, And then the world would actually end. When? uh, October 21st, 2011. So millions were going to be dying daily. Families sold off their possessions in order to help camping fund his billboard buying spree so that we could get the word out to people. Because if I'm driving home at five o'clock and I find out that the world's ending... I'm definitely not going to go sit in traffic again the next day. I'm going to prepare instead, right? And donate. And donate. I'm going to read from the Religious Dispatch what they wrote on May 22nd. Spoiler alert. Didn't happen. Oh, you ruined it. I know. (laughs) When the sun rose on May 21st, they were taken aback. Maybe it would happen at noon. When noon passed, they settled on 6 p.m. When that came and went, some thought it might happen at midnight. Or perhaps it wouldn't happen until May 21st was over everywhere on the planet. It will still be May 21st in American Samoa, the last time zone before the international dateline, someone posted on Ladder Rain, an online forum for believers. By Sunday morning, new theories were floated. It was God's plan to warn his people. It was his purpose to hide the true meaning behind May 21st. It's about us suffering what he went through. So did he pull a Miller and move his date? Yes. Of course he did. They're not the most humble bunch, these people who predict the end of the world. So he said, okay, well, I thought that, like, the real end of the world, like, all of it was going to be on October 21st. But maybe that's just when it kicks off. Maybe it'll just all happen at the same time. Right. So, like, obviously we're just going to move the party five months. Just... Keep sending me money, and we'll be cool. We can get through this, guys. It's just a little, just a minor setback. So then, uh, spoiler alert, it didn't happen. And he had gone to hide in a hotel for some reason. And when he came out, he told reporters that he was, quote, flabbergasted that it hadn't happened, and that he would be looking for answers. Funnily enough, he would not return anyone's money that had donated to his cause, even though he didn't deliver, because he said, we're not at the end. Why would we return it? Camping died in 2013, before the world ended, which is so sad for him. He actually did exhibit some humility and regret in his last statements. After his predictions didn't pan out, he decided that it had been a spiritual judgment day. Like Miller. Yeah, and that God was no longer saving souls. He was done with that gig. He was just, everyone else was damned. And he kind of said, ah, sorry guys, I may have been just, you know, lashing out irrationally because nothing worked out for me. He actually didn't say that, but subtext, whatever. He took down all of his predictions. They were removed from his website and billboards were taken down and things like that. So maybe he, in the end, learned the lesson of not to tell people to sell everything they owned and donate money to his religious cause that 
may or may not work out for him. And there really were plenty of families that were put in financial ruin because of this. I remember after this happened, reading articles about families with little two-year-old kids that had zero money left and had maxed out all their credit cards, and they were now just destitute purely because of this problem. I remember reading an article about a woman who had been pregnant like while she was prepping for the end of the world and like hadn't made adequate preparations for her child. <laughs> just being infuriated and sad for the baby. But anyway, yeah, it didn't work out so well for camping. And for, oh, like I just looked through the notes and you do not have the world record holder of apocalypse predictions even listed here. What's that? Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, yes. We couldn't do them all. I know, but they've predicted the end of the world, I think, eight times. Well, of course, you know, we didn't mention the Mayan 2012 thing, because that's just a lot of hooey. They just ran out of room, people. They just ran out of room. So while these are all some quite silly, out-of-the-blue predictions for the end of the world, you know, the world has actually come pretty close to ending several times in the last century. Like on May 21st, 2011? Uh, no, I was more thinking... In 1962. The Cuban Missile Crisis? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's pr- probably pretty accurate. And so the idea of nuclear annihilation of the entire human race is very real <laughs> and has been a concern since the first atomic bomb went off. Some of the scientists like Oppenheimer were very concerned that there was a possibility that if they started this nuclear chain reaction, that it would not stop. And it would just destroy the entire world. See example Dr. Strangelove. How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Yeah. But there have been a group of atomic scientists that have been watching out for all of these changes in the threat of nuclear annihilation for a while. In 1947, the members of the Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, um, started by the Chicago Atomic Scientists. Boy, you're redundant, you scientist, you. Atomic, atomic, atomic. Started the Doomsday Clock. Well, that sounds important and imposing and potentially life-altering. Yeah, it's, it's a clock. Oh. So the thing about the clock is... It tells time. Well, what its job is, is to mark how close we are to Doomsday, to nuclear annihilation. So that is the apocalypse they're offering. Yeah, that's what they're kind of predicting. The end of the world through nuclear annihilation. Okay. Well, that's what it was at the time. And so the closer you would get to midnight, okay. the closer you'd be to being burned to a crisp. Okay, so midnight is bad. So we'd like to be hanging out like around, you know, say six. That'd be great. So it's not set in real time. They meet... Every once in a while and reset it. So it's not always Oh, about- no. Oh, no, Jacob. Did scientists try to do a metaphor again? They did. Does it make any sense? Yeah, I mean, it's clock, close to midnight, it's bad. Is the terror level on orange? That was bureaucrats. <laughs> Sorry. Excuse me. So it started at seven minutes from midnight. It started there? Oh, yeah. Okay, let's not... Let's not give ourselves any room to grow here, guys. No, because they knew the Cold War was starting. World War II is ending. Everyone was doing this nuclear test. Shit could go down really 
In seven minutes. Yeah, it could really all happen in seven minutes. And so, like I said, it didn't really set in real time. So things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is what most historians say is the closest we ever came to nuclear war, was not reflected on the Doomsday Clock. But Oh, so, okay, I'm sorry. I thought you were telling me that you didn't act... That it didn't actually mean like seven minutes until the end of the world. But you're saying like they're not actually reflecting data in real time. Right. Ah, sorry. The time thing. Scientists try to do a metaphor. It gets confusing. Hey, it makes sense to me. It's because you're a scientist. I know it. (laughs) So the Cuban Missile Crisis, what was it like? Yeah, because it was here and gone in a few weeks time. So the closest we ever got... To midnight was in 1953. We were two minutes from midnight. Okay. That was when the U.S. and Soviet Union were both testing thermonuclear devices within nine months of one another. Yeah, that doesn't bode well. It makes me a little twitchy. I don't think it's the greatest plan we ever had. Yeah, I mean, it's really kind of the start of the Cold War. Things started to really height then. And in 1991 is when we were the furthest from midnight. 17 minutes. And that's whenever the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty was signed and then the USSR dissolved. Super. So that fixed everything and we got to have almost a quarter of an hour. Except now we're at three minutes from midnight. Holy shit. Nobody has like, we're not cold warring anymore. Well, so we are still worried about nuclear annihilation. That's always going to be a threat. Okay. But they started adding in other things as well. Because, okay, because they got bored. Well, because more than just one thing can destroy the Earth. <laughs> well, I thought they were concentrating on one area. As I was saying, and now they've added some other things. Like fire and brimstone? No, so they're worried about lack of global political action to address climate change, modernization of nuclear weapons in U.S. and Russia, and problems of nuclear waste. Okay. So now they've kind of lumped in a few other big things like climate change that could really affect the earth and cause global catastrophe so why we're at three minutes to midnight because of global warming oh all of it it's all take it like there's not like one pressing threat it's like just in general you're gonna fuck this up yeah basically fuck up is imminent it's pretty accurate okay <laughs> my humble opinion okay so since the 50s you know the scientific community has been concerned that We are on the brink of global annihilation. Even though we're not as saturated with it as they were in the midst of the Cold War, it's still always there. You still always hear about climate change and you hear about, you know, nuclear arms and suitcase bombs and things like that that could cause a lot of problems. That's fair. And I like that this clock is the one that is watching... Or, like, this this doomsday prediction is looking at, like, when we're going to destroy ourselves. Like, I feel like we could probably get a more accurate measure on that than divine reasoning and or timing. Yeah, because if anyone's going to fuck this up, it's going to be us. Yeah, no, we don't need much help. So, there's a really interesting fellow. Who's there now? Named Emmanuel Velikovsky. Oh, he sounds interesting. And he was a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst mm-hmm. in the 1940s-ish time period. Okay. Around the beginning of the Cold War. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he liked to write about ancient catastrophes. Okay. 
And he felt like the timeline of all of these major catastrophes in the world was just wrong. What do you mean? You know, he looked at things like the Bible and Jewish texts and Egyptian texts and tried to line everything up. Like the Great Flood and like uh, the parting of the Red Sea and that kind of stuff? Like divine events or just... Yes, things that were kind of described as divine events. Okay. As real things that happened. And so he, he found an Egyptian papyrus that mentioned the seven plagues. Okay. And he took that timeline, he lined it up with the biblical timeline, and con- and just like extrapolated from there and created his own new timeline where all these things lined up. I think that this guy was just pitching a podcast a couple of decades too early. Probably so. It sounds like it could be awesome. It'd be a great story. <laughs> Because that's just what this is. Oh, no. He felt that all these catastrophes were caused by big electromagnetic gravitational encounters of the Earth with other solar bodies. Right, so he felt all of these big catastrophes that had happened in the past were real. Okay. And that you could find that proof by looking at these old myths and legends and stories uh-huh. and lining them all up in a chronological way. Did he look at the wrong Jewish calendar? Probably so. <laughs> Something like the flood was one of his big examples that he always used because it's an Indian text and it's an Egyptian text and it's in Greek text. And he had some very interesting ideas. By the way, this guy was a psychiatrist. So he's good at math. They're not some, like, astronomer or anything. And he said that Earth had once been a satellite of a proto-Saturn before its current orbit. And a lot of these problems, such as the flood, were caused by a proto-Saturn entering a nova state. That all sounds very scientific, sir. Yeah, it's all just bullshit. Okay, good. But he wrote a bunch of big, best-selling books in the 40s and 50s. Amazing. It took such a scientific mind to do that. The concepts that he talks about are just interesting. And one great thing he states is that mankind blocks its memory of the failure of civilizations of the past while simultaneously desiring those catastrophes. Okay, I think on an individual psychological spectrum, that's probably true. So are you saying that we are not, as a whole, forgetting past cultures and societies well yeah but that's because the internet he didn't know about the internet it's just hogwash i feel like he could have made it up he probably could have made up the internet and then what would al gore do for a living i'm just saying like yeah he's a psychiatrist or psychologist or whatever and he sees that people have a tendency to forgive their mistakes more easily and like to move past trauma we have to kind of forget you know terrible things that have happened to us and at the same time if we've been through a lot of trauma we might have a bit of a death wish we might want more drama or more i feel like that is something that on an individual level probably makes a lot of sense when you're scribbling it in your notepad and saying Hmm, yes, I see. I'm very smart. I'm very smart. And yeah, actually, on a pretty global scale, and on a cultural scale, that's probably true, but I don't think that it has anything to do with proto-Saturn. 
I do think you could take his idea and look at the cultures that have been lost over the last few years and see how easily we just forget that that's happening. Oh, well, yeah, because we desire convenience and homogenization. We would, wouldn't it be nice if everyone was just the same? We didn't have any unique cultural elements. Then no one would be any better than anyone else. To me, like the most tangible example of our willingness to excuse cultural catastrophe is the rate of language death on a global scale today. So what's language death? Okay, so languages are considered dead if there are no living native speakers. So you always hear Latin as a dead language. That's what that means. While there are many fine scholars who scribble in notebooks and say, hmm, ah, yes, I am very smart and do know Latin, they were probably not introduced to it, you know, by living in communities of Latin speakers. So that commune where they only speak Latin does not count? No, no, that does not count. That's called Pretension Island, and it's going to be a reality show in a couple of years. Brought to you by the Just a Story Podcast Network. Before a language is dead, it's considered to be endangered. And this is, to a very small community of people, this is the impending apocalypse. And I don't mean the language speakers... That's already happened. They've already had their crisis. I mean linguists. Linguists, like, get all weepy about language death and endangered languages. And there's a ton of very conscious academic effort going into cultural preservation and trying to find a way to get these languages documented before they go extinct. So I guess I can see why that would be important, because language is just an intricate part of our culture, right? Right. And there's this fantastic quote uh, that I found in a piece in The Guardian about the death of a language in Alaska. And I'm going to read it to you because it's just very good. So the cause for language preservation carries on, as it must. In Krauss's words, every language is a treasury of human experience. But his fellow linguist, Ken Hale, puts it more bluntly. Languages embody the intellectual wealth of a people that speak them. Losing any one of them is like dropping a bomb in the Louvre. Yeah, so by losing a language, you lose a big part of its history and culture. No, you, you, you lose it. Like, there are things that exist within language that are specific to that language. They're pieces of culture that are readily recognizable and easily communicated between speakers that form the culture itself. So when the language is gone, that knowledge is gone. So, I mean, I can only name, just showing how naive I am, and, you know, I can't name more than, I don't know, 10, 20 languages. Well. How many languages? Between five and seven thousand Really? Really. So, I mean, who are speaking these languages? Small communities. um, A lot of languages have less than a thousand native speakers. Generally, a language will die about every 14 days. Mostly indigenous communities are the ones that experience language death at a higher rate. People who have, you know, experienced colonization in their geographical area are more likely to lose language. But there's a a general consensus among linguists, as much as there 
ever is that about half of these languages will die within the next 100 years. And with that, their culture. Because they're being brought into this kind of globalization, whatever bigger cultures around them. Right. They're they're not losing language. It's not like they stop speaking a language. They adopt another language and with it, another culture. So you can have two cultures. You can code switch. You can be part of two groups. That's fine. But when you stop kind of solidifying your own boundaries and uh, communicating your own ideas in your own language you are going to lean on that other language to express those ideas and more and more of its culture will creep in. Yeah, so you're losing that unique social identity. Yes. Now, a lot of people have, you know, wanted to learn the language that's spoken more commonly um, for trade and education and things like that. Kind of voluntarily, like they've kind of been like, well, that would just be easier. You know, the kids need to learn English. The kids need to learn Chinese, whatever, Mandarin. So we're not going to force them, you know, we want them to have that background. So we're going to make sure that we try to accommodate that. But there's always some kind of pressure that triggers the abandonment of one's native language. Pressure to fit in, pressure to excel and compete in that culture. Right. It makes a lot of sense. That just mass globalization that's going on. And... When a language dies, when people stop speaking their own language, there is a sincere feeling of defeat. Like it has a a very real psychological impact on the community. And it's seen as like an abandonment of identity and um, a need to move away from other cultural practices that are associated with that identity. Things that are communicated in and embellished upon by language carry significant meaning just purely because of word choice are things like prayers, myths, ceremonies, poetry, oratory, technical vocabulary for specific jobs or traditions, like traditional ways of slaughtering animals or whatever, humor, ways of speaking to children, terms of habit, behaviors, emotions. You see, like, this is all very feely internal stuff and big, grandiose, you know, like, defining... Well, it makes me think of when we talked about uh, the like campfire stories episode and how culture was created by sitting around and talking and telling stories and sharing information and creating religion. And that's where society and culture comes from. And not being able to do that in that native language, you're losing it. Mm-hmm. I, I get a big sad about this. Like, I, I should be very clear. Like, this is one of those things, like, I was reading about this while I was rocking my daughter to sleep, and I honestly had tears in my eyes reading it. I get real, 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 real feely about it. Think about it. I'm like, what have you never heard? What are the phrases that your your parents or your grandparents said went away? What if you didn't hear that accent anymore. Like I think about even going to your family, especially has such a very defined accent. And like when I hear it and I've been away from them, I'm like homesick for them. Well, there is a lot of writing and work in South Louisiana about the loss of the Cajun culture because of the loss of the French language or the Cajun French language Mm -hmm. in South Louisiana. It's, rarely taught it kind of ended with my grandparents generation on the people being fully 
fluent in it. Mm-hmm. And you lose those things. And all that's left are those little sayings and little bits of humor. And people not to say their prayers in French. I mean, all of this lines up with my experience. Another thing that I thought about, you know, your grandmother's generation is the one that had their knuckles wrapped when they spoke French. And your parents' generation are the ones that never learned it at all. That's very common. Normally, like, there's one group or one generation or maybe two where they are actually reprimanded and told not to use their language. And within a generation, it's not being taught in the home anymore. So it happens very quickly. Right. There's that quick line. There's some kind of catalyst Mm -hmm. that leads to it. One interesting thing about this is how linguists look at different languages and look and see how it relates to our cognition and how it relates to children being able to learn language. And I think that's super fascinating because there's even some research showing that, you know, babies will have different cries depending on where they're from in the world. Right. An accented cry. Yeah. And so even at that early stage, you have a language. You are starting to learn people's voices and languages in utero in theory. (laughs) And so you're already developing something the minute you're born. And you have to wonder when that is so radically changed, if it is something that has been developing innately on some level and you have to learn a whole new grammar and a whole new, like what that does to you psychologically, like what that must, I don't know. It just seems like it's, it's got to almost have biological ramifications, like the shock of it. Well, you wouldn't even know it if you're in that next group. Right. And the way children learn language is is so interesting. And Steven Pinker has some wonderful writing on it. And it's so fabulous. We'll talk about inborn grammar one day, guys. I promise. But moving on. So endangered languages are most often um, found in minority communities that are isolated. For example, like in Papua New Guinea, there are about 900 spoken languages. It's just a small area, too. Yeah, it's it's Tibeti. And it's it's just tribes, like various tribes have their own languages, and they're still able to remain isolated and hold on to them somewhat. So that is just an example of language density. What makes you think of in India? Oh, in India. Where you could have a different language spoken on different blocks. Yes, absolutely. In Australia, for example... Scholars believe that about 80% of the aboriginal languages will die within the current generation. What about in America? What about like the, our, the Native American languages here? Well, of the languages that were spoken at the time when settlers first came to the Americas, we retain about 90% of them spoken in some fashion, which is kind of badass. Why is that? Well, there was a very systematic backlash against the Indian schooling movement that occurred in the 1970s before it was completely lost. In addition to that, there's a lot of scholarly writing done. Some of the earliest anthropological study ever conducted was on documenting languages of different Native American groups. So there's a scholarly angle that has existed for 100 years, and then there's also a very deliberate communal and cultural push to retain that language from within different um, Native American tribes. Yeah, like you were saying with the Indian boarding schools, originally they would 
rap their knuckles, they'd get in trouble if they spoke their native language. But then whenever those were reformed, and a lot of times the actual tribes took over the schools, they made sure to preserve that language. And thankfully, because of the interest in different cultural practices from anthropologists and you know, just tourists and whatever, a lot of the ceremonial text and songs and things like that were around in some form to be preserved, you know, for them to almost reverse engineer some of the languages that had been, you know, were not spoken as commonly. So what are some other examples of languages that have been preserved that were on the threat of extinction? Well, one effort I really like and think is very interesting is in New Zealand with the Maori language. They are systematically implementing federally funded day schools that are immersive, and they're called Language Nest. And so they get native speakers to go in and teach in these schools and like help young children acquire the language at a time when they're naturally more adept at learning language. Interestingly... Despite this effort, there's been a lot of reticence among the Maori community to speak the language publicly because there's still so much prejudice, I guess, against the language in New Zealand. But the government was like, well, we'll fix that too. And they implemented Maori Language Year, which was a national program um, to try and promote and market the language as being desirable and make people more interested in the culture and make the speakers more comfortable using it in public settings. So it was a very top-down approach to hang on to that language. They're like, we're not letting this go, guys. I don't know what you think is happening here. Little areas are called language nests. Language nest, yes. I love that term. I do, too. And then people have adopted that in other places, right? Yes, and I actually found a website where if you would like to start a language nest, you may apply for funding from, like, an international trust or something. So Let's do it. Get on that. We've got to learn WordPress, baby. You do Cajun French. Let's do Southern. We'll teach you Southern. And another fabulous example. In 1799, a German naturalist named... Alexander von Humboldt went to Venezuela, as you do when you're a naturalist. He acquired a few parrots. As you do. As you do. And he noticed that the parrots were speaking, as parrots do. And he then noticed that they were not speaking the language of the tribe that he'd interacted with. But he believed they were speaking the language of Mepure. I'm going to mispronounce it. I'm sorry which was a language associated with a tribe that they had previously wiped out. And he was swept up in this very romantic notion that these parrots were the only speakers of this language. So this really happened? Debatable. Maybe. Maybe. But it did kind of really happen. Later, in 1997. That's a lot later. Yeah, it's a lot later. So there was an artist named Rachel Burrick. And she also acquired some Amazonian parrots. And she decided that she was going to teach the parrots to speak this language and use them in art installations. So she taught these two parrots to speak this language. How'd that go? (laughs) It went well. And then she got more parrots and she taught them to speak the language by using recordings of the parrots so they were learning 
from animals that actually spoke the language. I don't know. It's a very weird commentary. <laughs> it is. It's interesting. It's like it's being passed down uh-huh. by the other people that spoke it or birds that spoke yeah, it. I know. It's really interesting. And then there's some interesting things happening with language in Russia. So there's a very isolated, is a very isolated language called Chulim, spoken in Siberia. And two American languages from Swarthmore uh, went there to try and document this language. And like that, like their cab driver actually spoke it. And they were able to use him (laughs) as a go-between and actually start documenting this language. And while they were there, they did this amazing thing where they had stories that were like local folk tales dictated to them. They wrote the language out. They wrote them out in Chilim, and they also wrote them out in Russian to preserve, you know, some sort of translation. So people who were not native speakers could access it and learn it if they wanted to. And then they had local children from the village draw pictures to illustrate these folk tales and they put it all together and they created the first book written in that language. Oh, great. Isn't that lovely? Of course, art's another way that we portray our culture and Mm -hmm. it combines the two. And storytelling. Perfect. I know. It's like they have degrees and are meant to do this for a living. (laughs) And then I wanted to end with telling you a sad story because I'm good at sad stories. So in 2008, a woman named Marie Smith Jones died in Anchorage, Alaska, and she was 89. And it was remarkable because Marie was the last native speaker of a language called Yak. Jones is thought to have been the last full-blooded member of the Yak, a saltwater people of southern Alaska. When the Exxon Valdez ran aground in 1989, it spilled 240,000 barrels of crude oil into their traditional fishing grounds. More important, Jones was the last person to speak Yak fluently. She had held the melancholy distinction since her sister's death in the early 90s. Her passing means that nobody in the world can effortlessly distinguish a Demekka, a soft, rotten spot on the ice, from a Demekka ila ulu, a large, treacherous hole in the ice. It means that sinik adak uk, the vertical groove between the nose and upper lip, literally a nose crumple, has fled the minds of the living. And I just thought it was so sad because this is one person and they had, like, they become this, like, storehouse. Like, they know the culture and it's, I I feel like they're these time capsules and they kind of, in my mind, ascend to this level of, like, this mythological being who holds, you know, almost like the giver is what I think of. Like, they, they have all these secrets They have all these secrets and no one to tell them to. Well, that is the traditional elder of the tribe. Mm -hmm. They're there and their job is really to pass on the language, pass on the stories, pass on the culture to the young people so it continues on. Right, but when they're in a vacuum that the universe has presented them with and they, you know, don't teach their children the language, she chose not to because people told her it was pointless you know, they they find themselves isolated, then at the moment of their death, their world, their entire history does sort of end. Yeah, and so while a giant asteroid may not be coming to destroy us... Thank you, Bruce Willis. There may be other things that could be the equivalent of having our worlds destroyed. Maybe the end of someone's world 
a culture's world, a group of people's world. Maybe it's not just a story? It's not just a story. 